6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. We're studying the epistle to the Hebrews. We're in session 10, studying chapter 9. And uh, the epistle to the Hebrews, the first seven chapters, of course, presents Jesus as the new and better deliverer. We went through that and the three warnings that were included in that session. Then we are in the second session, which is a better covenant. We went to the priesthood, uh, through the priesthood of Melchizedek in chapter 7, and we see we're going to have a better covenant, a better sanctuary, and a better sacrifice in chapters 8 through 10. We were through the better covenant last time. The particular focus tonight will be on a better sanctuary with a slight overlap into the better sacrifice tonight. And the final session that will round out the book, of course, will be the practical applications in the last uh, couple of chapters. But Better covenant, that's the general area we're in, and specifically focusing on a better sanctuary. Better than what? Than the Levitical one, the one they're all used to. In chapter 7, we were introduced to the Melchizedek priesthood. And many people regard this whole section, from 7 to 10, the heart of the whole epistle. This, this priesthood that supplants, replaces the former priesthood. This is a real shock to the Jewish reader. Because they had divinely appointed priests executing divinely uh, approved rituals in a divinely located place, the temple that was still operating when they were reading this. And they're discovering to their shock that that's all been replaced, superseded. That's what, they're, that's what the writer is trying to get across to them, using just the Old Testament as his authority. He's not asserting his authority as an apostle. He deliberately hasn't signed this to put any kind of puts any kind of prejudice away. Anti-Pauline prejudice is shelved. Just look at what the whole the, the uh, Old Testament teaches in view of the Messiah having arrived. So this is the heart of the epistle, and it provides a comparison, a continual comparison between two priesthoods, two mediators, two covenants, two sanctuaries, two, two different sacrifices. Chapter 7, for verily there was a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. The previous system, the Levitical system, is abandoned not because it was weak, it's because the people are weak, because it was unprofitable. Disannulling, that's a very strange word. That's the same word that's going to be used in chapter 9 about putting away sin. Just as Christ has put away sin, that same word, that priesthood has been put away. That's a shock. To Jews today, it's a shock to, Mel- to uh, what we call Messianic Jews. There are many, many Messianic Jews that love the Lord Jesus Christ, that have accepted Him, but can't let go of the old system. Disannulling means to abolish. And in chapter 9, verse 26, it's the same verb used as Christ putting away sin. His death, Jesus' death, has put away the law for two reasons. Weakness, 
because it could not impart strength or justification, and it's unprofitable. It could not impart life. You can't get life from the law. The law did not give life. It could only show us the need for a solution to life. So the priesthood that is after the law can only be temporary. It was intended to be temporary. And here it's declared uh, replaced. It's been disannulled. This is a clear statement that the law has been put away. There's still people today that love the Lord Jesus Christ but feel they have to keep the Torah. They still have the 613 knots and all that. Having that just to celebrate the history, that's one thing. It's quite another to be relying on that in any sense of the term. This new priesthood was essential. If the law were still in effect, Jesus could not be priest. Because he wasn't a Levite. He was from the tribe of Judah. He was not eligible, in a sense. He could be a priest only because the law has been put away. That's all been the separation. He, he, you know, he's from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. So the writer here again making the point that the law itself didn't perfect anything. It showed us the need for perfection, but it couldn't perfect anything. It's probably a lie. I just uh, just talking to you here. You take your car in, and they have an electronic device that'll tell you what's wrong with it. It doesn't fix it. It just tells you where to look, so to speak. Right? It's a diagnostic tool. The law, in a sense, is a diagnostic tool. It shows us our need for a Savior. But that, don't confuse that with the repair. And uh, so, anyway. Also in chapter 7, it said, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. The word testament there, diatheke, it's covenant and testament is the same word in the Greek. New covenant, New Testament, Old covenant, Old Testament. It's the same thing. The word testament, though, in our vernacular, carries with it the idea that it's a, a set of promises that become executed at the death of the testator. So in that sense, it really fits Jesus Christ, as we'll see shortly. But the word covenant and testament are identical in the Greek. This is the first time here in chapter 7, it was the first time, a total of 17 times, this word is used 33 times in the entire New Testament, half of them here in this epistle. The security to make good this new covenant is Jesus Christ himself. He ministers in a better sanctuary, better covenant, with, uh, built upon better promises. He's not, he's not officiating in the sanctuary they were used to, a sanctuary made with hands. He's got a better covenant. He's not under the old covenant, a new covenant. That's the whole theme here, built on better promises. And then we have this key verse. Many people regard this as the key verse in the whole epistle. Wherefore he, Jesus Christ, is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Muhammad is not alive, he's dead. Muhammad isn't busily spending the rest of his energies on your behalf. I'm drawing a strange con comparison perhaps, but there's, 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 no, there's, there's no religion that has a man that is now raised from the dead, that's spending his time praying for you. He's able to save them to the uttermost. That's quite a word. And this, many people call this the high watermark of the, of the entire New Testament. Jesus is not dead. He's, on, he's not on the cross. He's not lying in the grave. He arose from the dead. So our emphasis is on the living Christ. This verse emphasizes, he ever liveth. Well, for what? To pray for you. Does he have access to his father? I would say so. <laughs> verse 
uttermost. Completely, perfectly, utterly. And these are intended to exclude nothing. There's no condition or situation which is not included in that term. That's fantastic. That come to God by him. There's one condition on all this. They come unto God by Jesus Christ. Not by the angel Moroni. Not by fill in the blank of anything else. He is able to bring them to God by making intercession for them. That's an echo of Romans 5 and 1 John 1 and so on. He ever lived to make intercession for him. That's the basis of our eternal security. Can you lose your salvation? No. He's praying for you continually. You think his prayers aren't answered? Okay. At this very moment, as we sit here with our Bibles, exploring these passages, he is at the right hand of the Father praying for you. Wow. <laughs> That's staggering. Whenever you're down, whenever you, and we all have, you know, life happens. There's always something. Remember who's praying for you. It's interesting that in the, in the tabernacle that we're going to be getting into here more in the next, you know, this chapter the next, there were seven pieces of what we call furniture or appliances in, in the tabernacle. But there wasn't a single chair. The table or two, huh? all kinds of other appliances, no place to sit. Why? Because they were busy working. They always stood because they were working. Jesus is not standing up. He's sitting on his Father's throne. Wow. Now, we've been through the Levitical offerings before. There are, of course, burnt offerings, meal offerings, and peace offerings. Those are the voluntary ones. Sin offering and trespass offering. See, the first three are voluntary. Those are our offering to God. The other two are compulsory, sin offerings and trespass offerings. Not for us anymore because they were made once and all, for all by Jesus Christ. Christ is our high priest, and he is one of exceptional circumstances. He's the Son of God, not just the Son of Man. And uh, he is the Son of Man, but he's not just as the Son of Man. He's the Son of the Son of God. He's also without sin. And he's unique in that respect because there was never a Levitical priest that was free of sin. Even a high priest was not free of sin. When he'd made his various procedures, his sins came, he had atoned for his, first, his own sins before the, that of the people and so on. The eminency of this order, the Melchizedek order, is higher than the Levitical order. We went all through that, but just by way of, you understand by emphasis here, the, 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 the Melchizedekian priesthood was a senior order over, because when Abraham was offering him tithes, Levi was still in his loins to speak rabbinically of it. And he, uh, the, the, Jesus also had the most solemn form of ordination, the oath of God himself. A Levitical priest had the job by virtue of his genealogy from Aaron. Yes, they prayed for him and all that, but this one by the oath of God. So then we got to the New Covenant in chapter 8. That's where the New Testament gets its name. And uh, the very fact there is a New Covenant implies that the old one is over. That's why one's new, that means the old one's past. And the whole idea of this epistle is to prevent his readers, from going back to Aaron and the Old Covenant. That's what they were used to. They'd, be, they'd been baptized in Christ, they accepted Christ, but that caused them a lot of grief socially. So they wanted to go back and play at it 
like it was all still the old way, and that's foreboding. So that's what he's dealing with there. Now, there are actually eight covenants, if you can study. One in Eden to begin with, but then the Adamic covenant after, at, with the fall of man. Then Noah's covenant, Genesis 9. The Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12. These are all key milestones in which there was a change in relationship of some kind. And after Abraham comes the Mosaic covenant. The first Jew was Abraham, but the Mosaic covenant led to what the, to, we know as the law. Between Abraham and Mo Moses, it was the area of promise, if you will. They knew one was coming. The land covenant, Deuteronomy 30. The Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. That's probably one of the most important ones for you and I. All of us are beneficiaries of the Abrahamic covenant. That was unconditional. The Davidic covenant is also unconditional, and that's the one that the millennium is a fulfillment of. And then, of course, the new covenant. Now, the Mosaic covenant is the one that is being done away with in Hebrews 8, by the new covenant. So it's the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Vedic covenant, and the new covenant are unconditional. Unconditional. And now we're going to deal with the true tabernacle. The writer's going to make a contrast here. The wilderness tabernacle, the one we all talk about that we read in, in Exodus 25 and so on, 25 to 40 essentially, it was a replica we're going to see that re-emphasized in the coming passages. It, it was a replica that was given. When Moses went up the mount and got the Ten Commandments, he also came back with a set of engineering drawings under his arm, the way I visualize it. He had all the specifications for this portable sanctuary called the tabernacle. But it was really a replica of the real reality. And uh, the real tabernacle is in heaven. The real Ark of the Covenant has never left. It's always been up there in heaven. The true tabernacle was pitched by the Lord, not man. The true tabernacle. Moses received instructions from the Lord on how to build this replica. It's important for us to understand that. The writer's going to emphasize this in subsequent verses. But this is the tabernacle that is discussed in chapter 9. It's going to contrast these. The original tabernacle, sometimes called the house of blood. Bloody place. It's all about offering animals. And as I say, the addition of the two tables is always visualized Charlton Heston coming down that hill with two tables of stone under one arm and a set of drawings <laughs> under the other. Engineering specifications for a portable sanctuary. The scriptures provide more space to the description of the tabernacle from Exodus 25 to 40 essentially than any other single subject. There's no other subject that has that much specific detail clustered for it. We serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For, see, saith he, that thou shalt thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. In other words, what they ended up doing on the ground is what Moses was shown, either by examples or somehow when he was up on the, on the mountain. The pattern showed to thee. And so, the original's in heaven, but the, the, one on the, the one we read about in the Bible was this replica that they used. It's interesting that the materials used in this are very significant. Brass is that metal which they were familiar with that could sustain fire. Thus, it became, brass became a, a symbol of judgment, because it represented fire, like andirons in a fireplace or something. It represented fire. 
Gold, of course, represents deity. That's why they gave him gold, myrrh, and frankincense at his birth. Silver means blood. You say it may sound strange to your ears if you're not familiar with some of the biblical uses of silver, but uh, the silver redemption shekel of the temple was a silver shekel, a special temple coin. You had to change your money to a temple shekel to make your uh, contributions. When Judah betrayed Christ, it was for 30 pieces of silver. Silver. And when he comes back, regretting the whole mess, he threw it, he says, he threw it on the temple floor and says, Behold, I've betrayed innocent blood. Silver speaks of blood. It's the re it is the coin of redemption, if you will. Now, if you look at the map, and I'm drawing this map with, with the east at the bottom, north to the right. The first thing you saw when you approached the tabernacle was the white linen fence. All you saw was this white linen fence, white being uh, holy or pure. And uh, it was about 75 feet by 100. If I'm using a foot and a half, roughly as a cubit, let's not get into inches more or less. It's basically close enough. So it's 75 by 150 feet. And uh, it's interesting that uh, the basic unit in here is 10 cubits, to give you a rough feeling for it. And 10 it, that means the total perimeter is uh, the length of Noah's Ark, by the way, interestingly enough. But uh, each of the posts are bronze with silver sockets. When we get to the other things, they all sit with silver sockets on the ground. Gold planks, so wood covered with gold, and, and, and silver sockets. The entire thing rests on silver. It rests on Christ's blood, in effect. Everything, every detail, every number, every material, everything here points to the Messiah. As you, there's one gate, by the way. You entered only one gate. Anyone that doesn't come through that gate is a thief and a robber. The first thing you encounter is the brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice. That's the first step to sacrifice. And then the second step is to wash in the laver. And uh, then there's the tabernacle proper, the naos, or the temple proper. And as we look at that more closely, it has one entrance. As you, it has uh, two rooms. If you think of 15 feet as a cube, both width and height, the first room is twice that, is two cubes big, so to speak. You go through another gate to this cubical room called the Holy of Holies. So you have the holy place and the Holy of Holies. As you enter the holy place, and by the way, the Jews could not enter this thing. The Jews didn't, the tabernacle wasn't a place they all met. No, no. You had to be a Levi to be even in that court. You had to be a priest to get into the uh, holy place. And you, the Holy of Holies, you had to not only be, be the high priest, you could only do it once a year and only after great ceremonial preparations on Yom Kippur. So that's part of the concept of holiness is the, is the, is the reduced access. Going through this, as you enter this first through the veil, if you will. On the left side is the menorah, the seven-branch candlestick, as it's called. It's not a candlestick. It's really a lampstand. But, and on the right side, you had a table of showbread, a loaf for each of the 12 tribes changed every Shabbat. And then you had an... Well, let's go through this. That's the menorah. And we have the table of showbread. Now, the golden altar, as it's typically called, it actually wasn't really an altar. It was a, a censer. But the point is... 
It is associated with the Holy of Holies. That confuses many people because it wasn't in the Holy of Holies. It had to be tended to twice a day. And you couldn't attend it if you couldn't go in there to attend it. It's associated, considered part of the Holy of Holies, but it's just outside the veil. That's what causes a lot of confusion. Inside the Holy of Holies are two things, not one. There's the Ark of the Covenant, of course, and there's also the mercy seat. All of us fall into the trap of visualizing the mercy seat as simply the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And that turns out to lead to some confusion. The mercy seat is the important, more important of the two. It's the, the Ark of the Covenant is wood covered with gold. The mercy seat is solid gold. It's hammered gold. More to the point, you'll discover if you study your scriptures, the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant are always mentioned separately, distinct, distinctively. The mercy seat is viewed as the place that God is sitting. When the, Holy, when the Holy Spirit, when the Shekinah comes in here and fills this temple, it is hovering between the, 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 the seat of the mercy seat are two cherubim, and they're, in my, my belief, they're always pictured incorrectly by the artists. They're always flared up wings and so forth. No, they are down, doing it, forming a seat, actually. There are some Egyptian things like this in which the two cherubim aren't, they have one to the side and one up, where the one up forms the back and the other is the side. It, it becomes a natural throne, if you will, in effect. But the mercy seat is um, uh, where the high priest comes in once a year, only once a year, offering uh, blood for his own sins and the, that of the people by sprinkling the blood between the cherubims and in front of them. Only one place does it mention that. But when you get to a description of the Millennial Temple, or in Ezekiel anyway, it speaks of the... The whole imagery, at least, is as if God is sitting there, sitting on the mercy seat. But the sprinkle in front is for the soles of His feet. So you, you can almost visualize Him sitting there, if you will. Um, we could go on and on, but that's, that's, that's the, the, the basis of it. The Word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is the title of Christ. Every detail in, this, in the tabernacle speaks of the Messiah. It says, I am the door. Anyone else that comes by me is a thief and a robber. The menorah, he says, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Each one of these things has a whole element of the Gospel of John behind it. The Censer, golden censer, or golden altar is sometimes called, is where it, it, the, the, the incense is idiomatically supposed to be the prayers going to heaven. It speaks of intercession. And that's his role today. Ark of the Covenant, he's our sin bearer, and he's the propitiation for our sins. So the coverings, now this whole building then, which is using these numbers, about 45 feet long, 30 feet in the holy place, another 15 for the holy holy, so it's about 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high, is covered with tapestries. The first thing to put on it is embroidered linen with gorgeous embroidery in gold, purple, blue, and scarlet of cherubim. Now, it's going to get covered by other things, so as beautiful as it is, you won't see it from the outside. 
The only people that appreciates beauty if you're inside. Okay? Now, let's back up a little bit. You walk up to this thing and you see nothing but white linen, just as righteousness. Okay? If you can enter, thanks to a suitable sacrifice and the suitable washings, you look at this strange covering and there's no beauty that you would desire it. But if you enter in, everything inside is gold, outside is brass. Everything outside is brass, speaking it's, it's ripe for judgment. Inside, what's there is gold. The walls are planks covered with gold. All the accoutrements are all gold. And uh, so it's gorgeous, but only appreciated when you're inside, if you will. After you cover this whole building, this uh, 40 foot, 45 by 15 foot building, you cover it with the beautiful linen tapestries. Then you cover it with, a, with goat's hair. Why goat's hair? comes from Genesis 22. Uh, actually, or correction, uh, the, the, the uh, sin, uh, not uh, Yom Kippur, the uh, scapegoat and all that, the sin bearer. That you think, well, that makes it unattractive. Then you cover that with ram skin, dyed red. What ram? The ram, the substitutionary ram of Genesis 22 at the Akedah. And when, after that, you cover it with, the term is not clear whether it's badger skins or porpoise skins, but clearly it's ugly. <laughs> Not, it's not good looking. And it's interesting how, you, how Isaiah speaks, uh, there is no beauty that you should desire it. He has no form nor comeliness, according to Isaiah 53 and so forth. And yet, he's our sin bearer, and it's by what he's done that we have access. Now, if you take a look at this thing in another way, the outer areas where the people were, you have the inner court, and then you have the holy place, three places. There are many writers that develop these ideas as uh, suggestive of our body, soul, and spirit. The outer, inner, and the holy place. Suggestive. We could spend a lot of time on that one. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.